0: And I was hoping to sing some more. That was nice. I enjoyed that. Quieted my spirit quite a bit. Thank the Lord for that. <clears throat> well, we're going to continue this evening on our journey that we began this morning. This morning we covered the defeat brought by sin. And uh, this evening we are going to cover the area of victory and restoration. And uh, it's been a good study for me, as, as is usual, when you take the opportunity and you have the privilege to study and prepare for these messages. I hope you were encouraged this morning. It wasn't too, um, it wasn't too hurried or uh, sporadic. We hope that you were encouraged as we saw the difference and we saw some of the challenges that Israel faced. And the believer faces similar challenges. The difference is, in that dispensation, God would deal with them regarding their rest in a land. In the dispensation of grace today, God deals with us in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find our rest in Him. And there's a lot of ways I try to to, uh, draw out some... Um, bookmarks or as it were some, some bookends of this first section of um, Joshua and I think pretty much everyone who's been up here has done that because there is a theme and you know God is interested in teaching us. These are not just academic knowledge that we're to acquire but there's lessons in this in, these, in this history, this true history. Of God's building His kingdom. Chapters uh, one through seven, in a lot of ways, they form a unit of a text, and we're getting ready to step into the uh, a neck the next unit, which will bring us through chapter eleven. And we we saw some parallels, or some, uh, I guess you would call them parallels, uh, between uh, this morning between Rahab and Achan, didn't we? we saw that, um, well, first of all, both of them open, Rahab opens this section, and Achan closes it. And uh, we see that Rahab was a female Canaanite prostitute. Achan was an Israelite man, so two opposites, right? Rahab hid the spies under her roof, and Achan hid the stolen loot under his tent, <laughs> right? Um, there was Rahab, her house, and her family were all saved. Achan, his tent, and his family, right, were all destroyed. Contrast there, and just a very interesting thing. And I think that when we see those parallels And we see the wisdom of God in the Scripture. we got to say, God is trying to teach us something here, right? There's some theology here that's constructed in this narrative to help us. And I think that some of the other things that we saw was that at Jericho, Israel had learned about God's strength, didn't he? Or she learned about God's strength as God... And his power would cause the walls to tumble. But then when you come to Ai, Israel learns about her own weakness when she doesn't depend upon God, when she takes it into her own hands. She could only conquer her enemies when she remains faithful to God. And these are some great lessons that we learn as we study the Scriptures. Now we're going to cover chapter 8. And we're just going to take some portions of it. I don't want to keep us here too long, like I did this morning and I have a tendency to do. (laughs) Uh, So, this morning, we're just going to cover a couple of key uh, elements here. I'm going to kind of divide it out. In uh, Joshua chapter 8, when, you know, after the people here had dealt with the, the sin of Achan, the way that God had commanded them when they had dealt with the sin, they were now ready to engage into the battle. They were ready to engage into doing what God had called them to do. In verses uh, 1 and 2, and we see here in view of God's defeat, he, he encourages Joshua. And he says, Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Take all of the people of war with you. Arise. Go up to Ai. Ai. See, I've given it into your hand. The king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So he's encouraging him. Now, you tried it before in your own strength. You see it didn't work. Now go in my strength. And there is a little bit of a difference here. His his strategy here, uh, you can see it in verse 2. Something different. In in, um, chapter 7, or in chapter six, when we were introduced, when they were introduced to go into Jericho, they were to uh, to consecrate everything to the Lord. But here in verse two, we see a little shift. He says, "And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. So you're going to defeat them, okay? Only this time, its spoil and its cat and its cattle you shall take as." booty for yourself okay so you're going to take it this for yourself and he begins to tell them how they're going to do it so this time is the israelites get to keep the spoil for themselves the generosity of god so we see that in the first two verses in verses 3 through 13 there is the um uh, the, 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 the command on how to proceed with the conquest, how to proceed in the, the venture, right? Uh, God tells them, to, you know, if, I think if I'm not mistaken, and what I've read about is the Israelites had probably around 40,000 uh, soldiers. And so God would tell Joshua to choose 30,000 of them uh, for this particular battle. And of the 30,000, 5,000 of them were to hide in ambush on the west side. Okay, and the remaining 25,000, and by the way, if you look in chapter 8 and verse uh, verse 25, it tells us how many people were in um, Ai. It says, so it was that... All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. So there were 12,000. And Joshua is going to take twice, more than twice as many from the city, and he's going to engage in this battle. The 25,000, they were going to approach them from the north and draw them out. So we see that in verses 3 through 13. Another interesting thing that we find is is that in verse 17 it says there was not a man left in Ai. As they came out, it says there there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued it. So apparently Bethel, which was even smaller than Ai, had united together... In this battle, they had come together. So not only was Ai empty, but Bethel was too. They were both drawn in to this particular battle. And these two cities, they made a treaty for a mutual defense. And then in verse 18, we see the signal of victory. In verse 18, this is, this is not the first time we've see, we see this. But there's a signal of victory because the Lord says, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And uh, we see here the the javelin being stretched out was a prearranged signal to his men in the ambush to attack. So he drew them out and then he would raise it And by the way, it's a symbol of victory that comes from the Lord. And we saw it another time, two times in Exodus. We saw it one time when they were there at the Red Sea and uh, the Egyptian army was on their heels, right? In Exodus chapter 14, verse 16 the Lord says to, Mos- uh, to Moses, "But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it." Right. So there's that. There's that that signal. There's there's that that symbol of victory. And then later on, in the attack of Amalek, when uh, Amalek would fight with the Israelites in Rephidim, that that um, Moses would hold up the spear, and it was the symbol of victory. So these are just some key points that we're finding in this chapter. In verses 24 through 29, we see Joshua carefully obeying the Lord's directions, right? The Lord had told him how to approach the battle, and he carefully obeys the Lord's directions that were not only given here, but the directions that were given to him previously in the law that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 27, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, in Numbers, we see God as, as, he's, as he's instituting his judicial law. And so uh, Joshua carefully obeys it. He killed in verses 24 through 29, he killed all the inhabitants of the town. Now, when I come across a section like this, and I know there are the critics who will say, what kind of a God is that? You know, we have to understand that these were idolatrous, God-hating nations that would, if they could, defer the leading and the direction of God, that they would take the plan of God and set it off its course if it could. These were not a bunch of innocent farmers sitting under fig trees. I guarantee you, as is expressed, when the first battle, when they approached Ai, right, and, and the, the Israelites you know, withdrew, as a result, what happened? 36 of them were slaughtered. So they weren't innocent people. And they were people who would, in many ways, uh, set the track of, of God's work off its direction. So we see that he had killed the inhabitants. He utterly destroyed Ai. And then he killed the king who he hanged on a tree. And by the way, he did it legally. Judicially, legally, he did it. As God had commanded in Numbers chapter 25, God had told them how to do it. In Deuteronomy, He repeated it again. And then, interestingly enough, He would erect a memorial stones and pile them in front of the gates just like He did somewhere else. Right? Just like He did in uh, chapter 7 in verse 26. So, we see here... Uh, Just some key thoughts again. The section, that particular, that's the first part of the section. And that is, in, in in a nutshell, that is the victory at Ai. And this particular section, in contrast to the previous one, it shows that God is the one who gives the victory. right? And he gives it when his people acknowledge their dependence on him and move along in obedience to His Word, and no other way, right? We were talking on the way here, and one of my kids were talking about going to some Christian concert, and everything, I said, oh, I really don't like that environment. I don't think it's really appropriate. And they would say, but they're Christians, Dad. And I would say, well, broad is the way, (laughs) and many there are that go unto destruction, Right? just because they name that name doesn't mean it right it's it's the life that they live it's it's an acknowledgement and a dependence upon god and honoring in obedience his direction that we look for not the running of the mouth right so there is an interesting note that i came across and and i i love history and i wish i were a historian um, but I'm not. Uh, so when I come across these notes, it's really tantalizing to me. And it kind of helps, I think it kind of helps us to put uh, this particular section of uh, Joshua chapter 8, verses uh, 1 uh, through 29 into perspective. And it's, it's an interesting to note that this is the first victory in the hill country. Jericho was not in the hill country, right? That was right off of the shore, probably. So this is the first victory in the hill country, and 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 it was in the region of Ai and Bethel, and those are some important landmarks. Ai and Bethel, they were, so they are, in, in extent, the most significant places, or or they were that is exactly where some of the most significant promises had been given to Abraham and Jacob okay that very same place some hundreds of years before we see that in Genesis chapter 13 we can look at that real quick if we have a minute Genesis chapter 13 it says, then Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, um, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock and the silver, and he went on his journey to the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. And that was where he and Lot would have that conversation For some reason or the other, the laborers are not getting along. So you take a spot, and I'll take a spot. And Lot would take the lush land and leave Sodom, uh, and leave the plains uh, to to the, the rusty land, the dusty land, and the plains to Abraham. You know, it's interesting, the humility of Abraham. You know, because if it was me, and I was with my nephew... And we we're having a conflict. You know, I don't know that I would be as generous as Abraham was. <laughs> you know, uh, Abraham could have very well said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> do you know who I am? We're not, we're not, it's not an option who's going to take what. I'm going to decide. God spoke to me. I'm God's man. I'm taking the green side. You take the other side. But he doesn't do that. And I think a lot of that had to be because the fact that Abraham was a humble man, that Abraham acknowledged his dependence on the one who called him, right? Who called him out of the Ur of Chaldees, right? So uh, that was the situation here. It says that it was between Bethel and Ai. And another place, Jacob, had a similar situation in Genesis um, chapter 28, in Genesis chapter 28, in verse 10, it says, Now Jacob went out from uh, Beersheba and he went toward Haran. So he's leaving Beersheba, he's going to Haran. So he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the, that place and he put it on his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. In you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. And God says this many a times to this covenant, to this promise. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. "...for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you." Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, "...Surely the Lord is in this place." And I didn't even know it. And he was afraid. And he said, "...How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven." Then Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put on his head, set it up as a pillar poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. Amazing. This is a very significant battle. The first victory in the hill country that the Israelites would see. So in this section we see three, up to this point we can come up with Three major lessons. We can glean three major lessons from this, I think. First of all, we see that Israel's occupation of the promised land, it wasn't a sure thing. It wasn't just given it to them, but their occupation of the promised land depended on her obedience to God. Right? And as a believer, even though... We have a promise that Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. While we're in this world, the joy that God has promised is not always there. When we're, It's not there when we're in disobedience. But the joy that we receive in our intimate relationship with God is found in our obedience. Secondly, the defeat in the land Well, the defeat in the land, it it didn't have to be final. It was not irreversible. Upon acknowledgement of sin, upon repentance, there was reconciliation given. And there was the renewal, we're going to see. There's a renewal of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And thirdly, to regain the land... The people had to, first of all, deal with the guilty ones, right? God wasn't just going to cover it over. We have to deal with it. And the same is with us. They had to return to obey the Lord. They had to deal with the sin that was in the camp. And they did so. And as a result of that, the next five verses, verses 30 through 35, discuss the renewal of the covenant and we're just going to look at that kind of briefly here Israel by now they've obtained a substantial foothold as it were in the land in their journey that God had called them to Uh, they they had gained a substantial foothold in their journey north to carry out God's instructions and the renewal of the covenant is now at hand the covenant that was made back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, when God would tell them, when you go into the land flowing with milk and honey, this is what you do, and I will give the land to you. It's a wonderful chapter to read. This is very, it's a very pivotal uh, section of Scripture, or the history of Israel for that matter. Here we see it was a significant place for this ceremony as well. Because it was there that God first told Abraham that He'd give him the land in Canaan. We read that back in Genesis chapter 12. In this very same place, He told him that He would give the land to Canaan. And another significant area here in Genesis chapter 35, this was the place that Jacob would bury his idols. Jacob would bury his idols and turn to the living God. So it was very significant. Now this next section, verses 30 through 35, I have it divided up into two sections. The first section, 30 and 32, we call it the altar. And then section 33 through 35, I called it the worshipers. The altar and the worshipers. Let's go ahead and read verses 30 through 32. Now Joshua built an altar... To the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had or adds Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, and it's over in this is over in uh, Deuteronomy 27. An altar of stones over which no man had wielded an iron iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and they sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Well, it's been rightly noted that the story, this story of the building of the altar of Mount Ebal, and that solemn reading, the blessings and the curses of the covenant, in that strategic area, it's a very important section to understanding the book of Moses or the book of Joshua. It's, it's important, it's, it's integral in understanding. When we look at the book of Joshua, there's something that we can uh, uh, undoubtedly or unmistakably understand by symbolism. The reader is told in the book of Joshua that the right of possessing the promised land, The right for them to possess. And I think this carries even into current day. That Israel's right to possess the promised land is is tied to the proclamation of God. It's not something that they decided to do. God's the one who promised the land to them. So Joshua reveals to us that this land is dedicated to Israel by God's proclamation and by them subjecting themselves in obedience to the Lord God of Israel. So it's a very important passage. It's a very pivotal passage. The ceremony here, it established that Yahweh is the God of Israel. It says here, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. So it's it's in the sight of the Canaanites who were still there, if there were any around. I'm sure there were some. It's in sight of all of the Israelites. It's, It's amounted to, in a lot of ways, this is Israel's declaration of independence. This is Israel's declaration of independence. The people offered burnt offerings. They offered peace offerings on Mount Sinai where God had told them to do this and where God first gave Moses what? The law. So a very significant place, a very significant battle, a turning point in the history of Israel. And their offering here, it recalled all of the former incidents and it shows that this covenant or this, this ceremony constituted a covenant renewal. God was renewing the covenant with them that not long in their journey they had kind of messed up. And when we get into chapter 9, you're going to see they kind of fell into the same scenario again, taking things into their own hand. So, interesting though, you know, the extent it says here um, that, an altar of stones, and they offered to burn offering And there, in, the, in verse 32, and there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Now, you probably are saying, "Wow, you know, what's he talking about?" Well, we don't, it's not really clear whether it's just the Ten Commandments, but really, what it was was a plaster board that they had learned in Egypt how to create this. It was plasterboard and then probably in red they would write in Hebrew letters the law of Moses. Maybe it was the Ten Commandments. Some say it was all of the cursings and the blessings, which would be Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And if you ever read that, there's a lot of writing going on there. So I'm not really sure when it says all of the law, perhaps it was represented in the Ten Commandments. And I think later on in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus would look at the people and He would say, you know, do not think that I came to abolish the law, right? He says, I didn't come to abolish, and this is the law that He's talking about, but I came to fulfill it. And I think through Scripture in general, when you think of the law of Moses or the law that God had given Moses, you think of three aspects. You think of the moral law which pertains to all of humanity, right? And then it gets a little more defined. There's the ceremonial law, right? Which, which pertains to Israel and their operation of worship. And then there's the judicial law which is still defined and pertains still to Israel and how they manage their culture and their society. So when you talk about the law, those three aspects are there. Um, I'm not sure how much he wrote, whether he wrote all of it or not. Um, They do say it's possible for him to write all of Deuteronomy 27. You know, I'm not sure. I will tell you what this does picture. And when I look at it, It pictures to me a people who just came through victory after defeat and stand in anticipation of wanting to know more and wanting to receive more so they can obey and honor God. I don't know if you get that picture, but that's the picture I get. And that's the whole idea here. It says, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of it. So we see the altar there And in verses 33 and 35, we see the worshipers. It says, Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, uh, stood on either side of the ark before the priest. And it was the ark they didn't have um, at that time. They didn't have a tabernacle yet. right? They were still moving. They were still... Uh, um, uh, what is that word when you're moving along? Okay, well, they were still moving along. Uh, It says, uh, the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the the stranger as well as he who was born among them. So there were others, other Canaanites, right, that were with them. Uh, Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim. And half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law. There's that anticipation. They're standing there and they're listening in anticipation, right? He read all the blessings and the curses. I encourage you, maybe sometime in a little bit of devotion, read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. It's amazing. It says the blessings and the cursings according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. So that's a little more specific when it comes to the reading. As a writing, it's a little more vague. But when he read it, he read all that he had. Right? He read the whole law. And it says, uh, uh, not a word. "...of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them." This ceremony, it confronted all of the Israelites. It confronted all of the men, the women, the children, the strangers. Everybody was involved, right? This was Israel's declaration of independence, And they are learning here as Joshua reads the law and he reads it all the way through and they in anticipation sit and listen. They are learning obedient response would guarantee their future rest. That obedient response would guarantee their prosperity in the land as well as their happiness in the land. So as we close it up, this chapter, we see that the objective we talked about a little bit this morning, and I hope it came across okay, the objective which um, I actually heard our brother David Gooding go through this, and then when we were at the, I have some notes from the men's as we went through the book of Joshua. The objective was for the children of Israel to establish the law of God at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. That was the objective. The obstacles were the the idolatrous cities of Jericho and Ai. And in their own strength, they couldn't do it. But when they would learn their dependence upon the Lord, when they would walk in obedience to His commands, victory was at hand. Their rest was soon ahead of us. And we can learn that same example as we abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a couple of other things. You know, just just by note, when you think of the, the Jewish nation and their law and their culture, and can I say their religion, I don't like to use that word, but their religion. Their religion was a very missionary religion. They were very outspoken. In, in judicial, the way they handled their culture, the foods they ate, the clothes they wore, they were separate. People would see them and say there's something different about them. They were different in their worship, right? They worshiped the Lord God of Israel. And as people would see this, it would, be, it would bring testimony, right, to the God that they worshiped. It's amazing that they were, in many ways, a missionary people. And it's important today for God's people the same way, to continue to declare their allegiance. It's important for the Christian to declare our allegiance to God's revealed will. God wants us to do that. And as we publicly, among unbelievers, do this, and we live... We pray that the Lord would be honored. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that very familiar passage, the Lord Jesus would say to the disciples who were there, He would say, But you shall receive power, right? You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the world. God has called us. To, to reveal him to the world, right? Just like he would through the children of Israel. He does in our lives through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you know, Hebrews talks about a better covenant, a better covenant. You know you look at Joshua and the struggles that the people had to deal with, the Spirit would be on Joshua. You look at David. The Spirit would be there. But it wasn't, it wasn't in, in filled like it is with us. Right? Their promise was in a land. Our promise is in a relationship. And the Spirit of God resides within us and encourages us to reveal the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? And it also helps us to understand that while we live as we do. It brings glory to God when people around us proceed to live and demonstrate the supernatural response that is in your life. Do people see your life and say there's there's something? And you walk into the room and there's just something about you. Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 16, he would say, Let your light so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. What a great privilege we have. So we look at these examples in the Old Testament and we see how they parallel in the, Old, in the New Testament and even to a greater extent. We walk in grace in a dispensation that God works and lives within us, and we get to be His testimony. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the studies that we see here, the the history that we get to study. As we mentioned this morning, in many ways we can look at it and make sure that we don't fall as many did then. That we don't, uh, we are not deceived by the enemy of this world. And truly, there is an enemy at hand. Even as Israel went into the land that was promised to them by God, that they would have a battle before them. In a lot of ways, their battle was physical for a physical land. Today, our battles are spiritual. It's not principalities and powers, but our battles are spiritual. And so, Father, we pray for strength and wisdom, as we considered your word, pray the saints would be encouraged, and more than anything, that our Father who is in heaven, would be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.